Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out ce.vcu.health.org slash Cribsiders for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Wow. <laughs> Welcome back to the Cribsiders we have a great team tonight. Dr. Krista Truman Chu's in the house. Oh, and we have our wonderful assistant producer, Edward Cordy. Is it Ed or Edward? Hey, guys. In a previous life, maybe Ed, but for my mom, it's it's Edward for good now. Edward. All right. And we are also joined tonight by an outstanding guest, Dr. Dave Stukas, uh, on Twitter, known as Allergy Kids Doc. He's here to discuss pediatric asthma. But first, Chris, let's remind our guests about the show. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And today we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. David Stukas. He's an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital at The Ohio State University College of Medicine. In 2011, he developed the Complex Asthma Clinic at Nationwide Children's Hospital and has served as the director since then. Dr. Stukas is heavily involved in the American Academy of Pediatrics and College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology with various leadership roles. He's been committed throughout his career to disseminating evidence-based information and current clinical guidelines to healthcare professionals and the general public. He teaches us about diagnosis, management, new literature, and fun pearls on asthma control. I'll be honest, I did not think I would learn about eosinophilic esophagitis today. Totally. I agree. He, What a great episode. So without further ado, uh, guys, let's get to it. You know, Justin, Chris, halfway through this episode, I started thinking, gee wheeze, this is a lot of pearls. <laughs> That's horrible. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Well, Dave, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We're very excited about uh, talking about pediatric asthma. What a core topic for pediatrics. And so we'd like to kind of start with some rapid fire questions just to, to get, you, get to know you a little bit better. And is there a way, could you describe yourself uh, in a one-liner so that listeners can understand who you are? Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I am a pediatric allergist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, married to a pediatric emergency room physician with two wonderful children who are seven and 10 years of age. And in addition to my work in treating patients with allergic conditions, I spend a lot of time online combating misinformation through social media. It's a hefty job. (laughs) (laughs) You could definitely get pretty difficult out there in the social media world with uh, a lot of people who want to give misinformation. So So my question for you is my favorite question that I like to ask guests is, what is your favorite failure and how did you learn from it? I'm a big believer in failure. I think that's how we all grow. I'm not afraid to fail. I I think if we we don't set big goals, then we're not going to achieve all that we can achieve. And my biggest failure actually relates to today's topic with asthma. I helped establish a community asthma-based management program through primary care pediatric offices throughout central Ohio. So it was my job uh, to recruit these practices, to train them on the, the hallmark of the, the program, and then really follow up with them over time and collect data and go through with things as they got up and running. And what I found over after three years of working on this was that each practice is basically its own tiny microcosm and its own quality improvement project, all the different logistics. And my ultimate failure from this was we lacked a way to really demonstrate outcomes. It was almost an impossible task. We couldn't capture each individual patient to know if they were staying out of the ER, what their clinical outcomes were. But my inability to capture those outcomes led to the project's demise because I wasn't able to demonstrate to those who were funding it that it was a worthwhile endeavor, even though all the practices found it to be helpful and the anecdotes were useful. But I think that's my biggest one to date. And uh, since then, I've learned to um, think about outcomes and how are you going to you know, demonstrate your worth for any new project that I take on. And I try to think one, two, three years down the road of what's this report out going to look like and what am I going to be talking about that time? That's helpful. That's helpful advice too for doing research in general and people doing research in their career. I, it is frustrating sometimes too, though, that I think the project can be worthy in and of itself, but it's a great reminder of planning ahead. 
Metrics mean different things to different people. So I think clear communication and expectations from the get-go just helps everybody. It just puts it in a different framework. Totally. My question, I am a, a big reader at times uh, and am always uh, down to hear about a new book. Do you have any book recommendation, one that you think every physician should read, medical, non-medical, pictures, no pictures, whatever uh, you think is something that's worth mentioning? Can I offer three quick ones? Absolutely. Okay. Um, the, my inner nerd loves The Martian. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is the movie with Matt Damon, but- <laughs> I didn't even know they made a book great. about it. Oh, well, they made a movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh my gosh, they the writer actually did all the calculations and everything that's done is legitimate. Like it's yeah. a plausible, you know, script plot, which is fantastic. So I love that. It's well-written, sarcastic. It's fast moving. I think everybody needs to read Bad Advice by Paul Offit. Most people know that Paul Offit is a vaccine guru out of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He has multiple books, but his latest, published in 2018, really talks about why all of our patients and the general public are more apt to listen to celebrities, politicians, mass media than they are to us. And it gives us the blueprint and the playbook to combat a lot of that misinformation. And then lastly, I recommend anything by Atul Gawande, but specifically the Checklist Manifesto, because that I think teaches all of us that if we can adapt and adopt to a um, regimented checklist of things that we do during patient care, we're much less likely to miss things, kind of like the Swiss cheese model, right? So those are my three. Excellent. Excellent. Can you tell us about your advocacy and the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America? Yeah, the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America is the country's longest running patient advocacy organization for patients with allergic conditions. So they really um, help patients with asthma, uh, allergic rhinitis, food allergies, atopic dermatitis, immune deficiency, things like that. And I first got involved with them, oh my gosh, almost 15 years ago, I think. And they reached out as you know, help with their medical scientific committees, uh, really just vetting some of the information they were putting out, dealing with media requests. I continued my involvement. I actually joined the board of directors for AFA for a couple of years. I've really enjoyed this work because their goal is to reach a population of patients in need. With asthma especially, that's what I love today's topic. There's a lot of folks out there with asthma that don't have access to the resources that they need just to maintain good control. There are too many people that think it's normal to need to go to the emergency room several times a year for asthma. When if we can just get them some simple resources, we can prevent that. So where can people look to get more information from AFA? Well, you can go to their website. Uh, it's just um, www.afa.org. They have a subsidiary, Kids with Food Allergies, and they have wonderful online resources, patient-based resources, very clear communication, and I encourage everybody to check it out. Fantastic. The work that you're doing is incredible because there are so many health disparities in asthma in pediatrics where low socioeconomic status individuals are disproportionately affected. Black individuals are more likely to die of asthma. I think these are all important topics. And I am proud that as a show, we are able to kind of learn more about uh, treating pediatric asthma so we can, we can help resolve these health disparities throughout our careers, through advocacy and, for, and treating these patients. Excellent. We should, should we get into it? Let's get into it. Let's get into Let's it. Let's do it. <laughs> Justin, you're going to have to read it because I can't bring myself to read the name. So our first case at a Castlat Children's Hospital is Celia Saba. This is a four-year-old girl, no past medical history, no uh, previous diagnosis of asthma, brought to the outpatient clinic by her mother for an annual well-child check. She has really no complaints, but Celia has had some noisy breathing on occasion and this intermittent cough that happens a few times in the past month, and she really can't figure out why. In the clinic, her vitals are stable. She has a temp of 98, heart rate of 92, respiratory rate of 26, and a blood pressure of 106 over 60. Celia is seated comfortably on the table, playing with a race car, has no real increased work of breathing, but on exam, she does have some bilateral faint expiratory wheezes. And so when we have a patient like this in front of us without a diagnosis of asthma, what are you thinking about the wheezing kid in front of you? And maybe what other questions would you want to ask Celia or her parents um, in treating this patient? Well, the first thing I think about when I consider a diagnosis of asthma is chronicity. So um, what's the pattern of symptoms over time? Asthma is recurrent episodes of respiratory symptoms over time. It's not that one bad bronchiolitis that lasts for six to eight weeks, and then you have really bad luck and you get a URI as soon as you're discharged from the hospital or anything like that. So what's the pattern of symptoms that are, you know displayed over time? So that really helps me think about things. It's exceptionally difficult, if not impossible, to diagnose asthma with somebody's first episode of persistent cough or wheeze. 
we need to see what the pattern's going to entail. And then the symptoms I ask about are really just, you know, tell me the respiratory symptoms because asthma is a respiratory disease. If you do not have respiratory symptoms, you do not have asthma. <laughs> so, you know, asking about it. And cough is the most common symptom. A um, sensitive sign for asthma is post-tussive emesis. If you're coughing to the point where you're actually throwing up afterwards, that's some pretty significant, you know, reasons for your cough. With the one caveat being kids with a lot of post-nasal drip when they get colds and stuff, they can obviously cough up phlegm. Are they waking at night due to their cough or respiratory symptoms? That's also indicative of asthma as well. Are they having wheezing, chest tightness? For older children, can they describe the sensation that they have? And then we talk about the circumstances in which the, the symptoms occur. And I'm sure we'll talk more about triggers and things like that. So that's where I start. Just let's accurately define how often symptoms are occurring, when they're occurring over time, and what the symptoms are. Now, is all that wheezes asthma? No, not at all. And in fact, you know, a lot of kids don't wheeze at all. We may not hear that even when, when we listen with our stethoscope. And there are many other causes for wheezing, especially viral lower respiratory tract infections. Uh, there's about 40% of toddlers, I believe, will wheeze at some points, but only about a third of those go on to develop asthma. So we need to think about all the other causes. So viral infections are common. Of course, we always want to worry about foreign bodies or, you know, any type of anatomic obstruction that's going to cause that, that wheezing sound when you auscultate. Now, you were talking about toddlers. I, I've heard that some people have lower limits uh, of where they feel like they can uh, diagnose asthma, and up until then, they'll cause some sort of reactive airway disease. Is there a clear definition there? Well, it's really easy because there is no definition of reactive airway disease. There's no ICD-10 code for it. It's not. It's a, It's really a made-up term. And really what it is, is it, it's a term people will use when they don't know if they should apply the, the diagnosis of asthma or they don't want to for some reason. There's these old misconceptions that if you diagnose asthma in a kid, they can never go into the military when they're older. Well, you know, I say, call it what it is. If it's not, you know, if it's asthma, then the family can do something about it. Whereas if it's reactive airway disease, they say, oh, I had to go to the ER. Here come the reactive airways again. There's nothing I can, nothing that can be done. Oh, well. So really it is or it isn't. So I don't use that term and, and really there's no place for it. There's, there's no terminology or definition of reactive airway disease. And as far as the age cutoff, there is no age cutoff. Asthma is a clinical diagnosis. There, you know, we'll talk more about testing, but there's no test that definitively says yes or no on asthma other than a methacholine challenge, which you really need to be old enough to be able to participate in that. That being said, we talked already about the need to establish recurrent respiratory symptoms over time. Kids have to be old enough to allow themselves to establish that pattern. So it's really hard to diagnose asthma in a six-month-old, but you can in a 12-month-old if, if their history is severe or persistent enough. As far as the specific criteria, when do you say this is a child that has asthma? Is it you know, two wheezing episodes that you can't otherwise say is from your eyes? Is it going through this table of a specific number of nighttime awakenings? Most experts would agree after four episodes, um, you've established a right. good pattern, but there are other elements that can clue us in. So we know that in children, especially with the inflammation that is associated with asthma, the majority of those kids have a TH2 allergic inflammatory pathway. So they're going to have other indications that they're likely to have asthma. Family history plays a big role. Does the child have a history of atopic dermatitis or eczema, especially if it's more severe? Do they have food allergies? Do they have environmental allergies? The more allergic they are or the more family history they have, the more likely it is that they have asthma at that moment and also will have persistent asthma as they approach school age. And then ultimately, you know, we talked not all that wheezes is asthma. We, we should cheat as much as we can. And the way we cheat is what happens when they receive albuterol. Because as you know, and your listeners know, albuterol is a bronchodilator. It acts very fast. It also is very short lasting. So during these episodes of either cough or wheeze or respiratory symptoms, have they tried albuterol? If not, that's our opportunity to prescribe it, teach them how to use it, teach them what to watch out for and track their use. If they have used it before, what's been their response? If they've used you know, 400 puffs of albuterol and it's never made a dent in their respiratory symptoms, it's probably not asthma. With the eczema, with the food allergies, and with the other kind of atopy that you see with these kids... A couple of times I've used the asthma predictive index or some of these scores to help predict the likelihood that a child will develop asthma. Is this something you use? Or are these something that are pretty reliable? They are reliable. And what they're reliable mostly for is ruling out those infants or toddlers who with a recurrent wheezing that are not likely going to have persistent asthma. 
So they're not very good at saying, yes, you definitely are. But the example would be, so some of the things we already talked about, family history, uh, if you have sensitization to arrow allergens or foods, or if you have atopic dermatitis, or there is a, a provision for peripheral eosinophilia greater than 4%. Not that we want everybody to get complete blood counts on these kids, but if they already have one and they have ruperoin eosinophilia, you say, okay, this is probably a TH2 inflammatory pathway. So if they are negative to all of those risk factors, um, this is not likely going to be persistent asthma at school age. And this is probably going to be a temporary thing, whether it's just asthma of, of toddlerhood that they outgrow, or it's early onset, but transient, or who knows what. And then if they do light up the board with all these risk factors, so this is something I do for every single patient that I see, I'm automatically doing this in my mind. I'm not necessarily calculating scores or, or you know, hammering over details, but you get the gestalt. You're like, oh, an allergic kid from an allergic family with this pattern of recurrent wheezing, I think they have asthma. I think this is going to be persistent at least for the next few years. And then you have the conversation with families in regards to prognosis of say, listen, you know, I, I know you want this to go away and you don't want to hear this diagnosis, but now that we have it, we can do something about it. So let's talk about whether they need a daily controller medication. Let's talk about as needed on demand therapy whenever they start to have symptoms. Let's talk about goals of keeping out of the ER and so on and so forth. That's great. That's awesome. Should we go on to the next part of the case? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Upon further questioning, Cecilia, <laughs> I knew I'd screw up the name. Cecilia is short Ce for Cecilia. Yes. Celia's mother realizes that her symptoms have occurred only on the days that she had brought Celia to the salon where she works as a hairdresser. How would you categorize the most common triggers and types of pediatric asthma? Yeah. So there are, it, it, an important concept for people to understand is that the triggers that can cause asthma symptoms can be both chronic exposure and acute exposure. The triggers can be shared among different people with asthma, and they can also change over time within the same person with asthma. You don't have to just check off the list and say, oh, this is the, your trigger and this is the way it's always going to be. But the most common trigger for asthma exacerbations or symptoms in young children, especially would be viral upper respiratory infections. The typical story is I get a cold from a virus within two or three days, persistent cough and or wheeze, and then they tend to cough for another 14 days afterwards. That's the classic example of viral-induced asthma. Changes in the weather pattern are also another common trigger, hot to cold, cold to hot, rainy to dry, dry to rainy. Extremes of temperature can be a trigger, so very cold air in the wintertime is very dry, and the dryness is the trigger. Also, hot, humid air and poor air quality. Those ozone action days can be a trigger for some people. It's a misconception that exercise is a common trigger, it really isn't. There's very few children, especially, that have pure exercise-induced asthma. A lot of children have poorly controlled asthma and may have difficulty when they exercise, but if you control their asthma, then they can often exercise. But we need to ask about that as well. Any type of aerosolized product, even if it's all natural or good smelling, can be a potential trigger. So these small particles are important. So for Celia's mother, when she goes to the hair salon, she's likely exposed to a lot of these different aerosolized products. So one thing I ask all families about is tell me about the home environment. That's an amazingly important part of our assessment. Are you exposed to cigarette smoke, tobacco smoke, pipes, cigars, marijuana? So we have to ask about that. Scented candles, perfumes, colognes, aerosolized cleaning products. Are you cleaning your house with Lysol top to bottom every day? Incense. Are you using essential oil diffusers? And you know, I have to ask that more and more frequently now because families are doing this because they think it may actually help their child's asthma. And the way I explain it to families is I say, this is not likely the only cause of their asthma, but it's potentially a contributing factor. And if we can lessen exposure, it may improve their symptoms. Then, of course, we have allergens. So we have indoor and outdoor allergens. Indoor allergens would include things like pet dandruff from cats and dogs. We have dust mites and cockroaches and mice are a big problem with inner city asthma. We talked earlier about some disparities. It's a huge problem in the inner city population of exposure to, to cockroaches and mice. I mean, chronic exposure to these indoor allergens can lead to poor asthma control. And then we have the seasonal pollens as well. So in the springtime, it's tree pollen. In the summer, it's grass and weeds. In the autumn, it's, it's ragweed. And then we have mold spores throughout the year on during rainy weather. I also um, ask about summer camps. So exposure to campfires, that can be a big trigger for a lot of people. So, you know, I've spent a few minutes now discussing the, the long list of potential triggers, and it's important to Kind of go through these because if we can avoid exposure, uh, that would be helpful. That's a helpful list. I admit, I often ask about triggers, but as you mentioned, this, that was a long list that I am not always as comprehensive as I could be. I'm also uh, kind of a, a little heartbroken that I, when I run, I often get short of breath and I always just assumed that was because I had exercise-induced asthma, but it might just be some cardiac deconditioning after all. So that's a that's a challenging conversation to have with families. Uh, <laughs> and, I believe it. You know, I believe it. Yeah, but you, see, you know, the way I explain it is, I say, listen, any one of us, regardless of what type of physical condition you're in, if you push yourself hard enough and fast enough, you're going to get out of breath. So the key is, what are your other symptoms? Does it 
resolve if you rest for a few minutes. So there's some ways to differentiate that. I'm already learning a ton. It's very helpful. I don't know if we can blame your asthma. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. So, so I am a notoriously bad learner. I I always forget things. I have to read things ten thousand times. Things that I always can never keep straight in my mind is how to assess severity of asthma. Now, like I always remember, okay, nighttime symptoms, yes, but then there's like a myriad of other things, like how many times have exacerbations throughout the day, throughout the night. Is there a, a way that you like to explain to learners like how to assess severity and, and I guess, control as well? Yeah, I agree. I, I've struggled with this as well. And I don't think that the last iteration of the NHLBI guidelines did us any favors. There's, you know, there's charts and there's checklists and there's variations. It's just hard. So here's how I think about it. I try to make it as simple as possible. You can assess severity in somebody who's not on a daily controller. Once they've been prescribed and or using a daily controller, you can no longer assess severity. Then you need to assess their level of control. That's it. Because if you're taking an inhaled corticosteroid every day, I have no idea how severe your asthma actually is at baseline because I don't know. You're taking this medicine that's supposedly controlling that. But we also need to monitor control over time because control will fluctuate over time. That's what asthma does. It's a roller coaster. It changes throughout the year. It changes during certain seasons. It changes as children get older. It's not a set it and forget it type of disease. It's Let's assess right now, how are you doing? Do we need to make any changes? And we'll talk about treatment soon. And then you assess control at every single visit. If they come in to have a splinter removed, you assess their control. If they come in because of active respiratory symptoms, you obviously would assess their control. And then the key elements for both of them are the same. Nocturnal awakenings. And the way you ask the question is, how often do they wake at night due to breathing difficulty? It's not you hear them coughing from the other room. Are they actually waking at night? And if so, why? Do you have to do something? There's a lot of kids who have you know, behavioral component to their sleeping pattern. They crawl into bed with parents or they get a drink of water. That's not what we're talking about. How often do they need to use their albuterol due to symptoms? This does not count for exercise-induced asthma. You can use your albuterol every single day and have well-controlled asthma if it's prior to exercise. So how often do you actually use it as a rescue inhaler? And then we talk about exacerbations. And then there, there are provisions for spirometry and level of um, lung function and things like that. But it's really the rule of twos. So well-controlled asthma is you're using your albuterol two or less times a week on average. So we average it out. It doesn't count if you have a cold two weeks ago or anything like that. Uh, you're waking at night two or less times a month, or you're needing oral corticosteroids two or less times a year. Those are indications that this is relatively well-controlled asthma. So I try to keep it as simple as possible. In the primary care office, when you're assessing for control, do you have a recommendation on should we be giving every parent like an asthma control test? Should we be doing peak flows on everyone? Is that or is it all kind of this gestalt? And is there any evidence to support one or the other? How how should we be doing this in the primary care office? I guess. Yeah, great question. Peak flows, no, because uh, that just gives you a, a spot measurement, which is very effort dependent, especially in kids. So that's not going to assess control. When you assess control, you really want to try to look at the previous four weeks. There are validated questionnaires that are frequently in use, such as the asthma control test, the asthma control questionnaire. So I would I would recommend adopting one of those and handing it. You know, finding a way to identify those patients with asthma, hand it to the parent at the time of rooming. That way it's filled out. You walk in the room, you look at the validated score, and the, there is research to, to back all these up. And you can look at the score and determine very easily whether their asthma has been well-controlled or poorly controlled over the prior four weeks. Now, there are caveats. So if they were in the ICU six times in the last year, but they've done great over the last six weeks, you're not going to capture that. So you still have to go through a, a history to figure things out overall. From a, from a practical standpoint, so when I, when I put in my ACD10 code di diagnoses into the computer, I, they always has, have me put in like yeah. are they mild, mild intermittent asthma, are they mild persistent. And sometimes I, I literally like I just met them. I don't know. But like is, how do you handle that? What do you put in? I base that upon the level of therapy that they require. If they're not on a controller, it's mild intermittent asthma. And that's the definition. If you feel that they have a different type of asthma, then you should be talking to them about a controller. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and then it's basically the level of controller that you have them on. So low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, that's mild persistent asthma. You have them on combination therapy when you add on a long-acting beta agonist or you bump the dose of the steroid, that's moderate persistent asthma. And then it very, you know, if you look at all the studies in kids, less than 5% have true severe persistent asthma. A ton of kids have poorly controlled asthma because they're not taking their medication. We'll talk about non-adherence. There's environmental exposures, all of these issues. Um, that doesn't mean they have true severe asthma. Excellent. Thank you. 
Just Should we great. go on? Yeah, let's go on to kind of the treatment question. And uh, you want to do this one, Chris? Because I, <laughs> uh, I had the privilege of doing the first excellent name. Oh, man, I should have realized this. Okay. Later, <laughs> later that day, 10-year-old Luke Otrine is brought to the clinic by his father due to asthma symptoms each of the past five days. He is a well-known patient and diagnosed mild persistent asthma who has been prescribed a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid as maintenance therapy and albuterol rescue inhaler. What are the goals and cornerstones of pediatric asthma management, in this, especially with this patient? Um, the goals of any child with asthma are to come to a individualized approach for every child and to work with their family to come up with, to use shared decision making to identify the goals and then to follow that over time. It makes no sense for somebody who's never been hospitalized for asthma to make it a goal to prevent hospitalizations. That's a different child. It's a different type of disease severity. However, if somebody has had multiple hospitalizations over the past year, it is a very reasonable goal to say, I want to decrease your hospitalizations. <laughs> so walking it through. So for some people, it doesn't have to be hospitalizations or ER visits or ICU stays or anything like that. Frequency of exacerbations, the impairments on a daily basis. Are they able, do they have any physical limitations? Are they missing school or missing work because of their asthma? Asthma is a leading cause of missed school days, and then parents have to miss work because of it. If that's the scenario, then that's a, a significant goal to try to achieve. But the goal for any family, and I would hope for every physician and everybody listening to the, the program now, is the goal should be to reduce symptoms, let kids sleep through the night, exercise without limitations, reduce the frequency and severity of exacerbations. And in order to achieve that goal, there will need to be ongoing follow-up care, ongoing assessment of their asthma control, self-monitoring, and likely uh, use of medications in appropriate ways and avoidance of triggers. It's like the easiest thing in the world, but it's the hardest thing in the world. So is, is this a place where you might sort of pull out your asthma action plan or to, to go through what so that everyone has sort of ideals and the goals, but also what steps of therapy they need to be at? Or is this a different place where you, you would put that? I, so uh, the asthma action plan is the last step in my mind. Um, gotcha. that just re that's the take-home message. That's the reinforcement of everything we just discussed in the office. And that's going to highlight, you know, we see them in the office. Let's say they have severe asthma. I'm going to see them every two to three months for 20, 30 minutes at a time. So I'm seeing them for four hours out of the year, tops. Then they have to go and live with their disease for the, the remainder of their time. So the asthma management plan or the written asthma action plan is their cheat sheet for when they go out and they're fine for two months and then all of a sudden they have symptoms. That reminds them what to do. That reminds them when to call. Gotcha. Let's let's talk about treatment. When we have a patient that does not have controlled asthma, whether it's newly diagnosed or not, what are some of the first medications that you turn to? And specifically, how has this changed with the new GINA guidelines that, I don't know if it got a ton of press, but it seems like this has really revolutionized some of the initial ways of how we treat asthma based on their guidelines. Well, yeah. well, they also, they don't call themselves guidelines either. They call themselves You're, treatment strategy, just to be clear. Fair yeah. interest. <laughs> so, right. So for those who aren't familiar, the GINA asthma treatment strategies or whatever they're called, they're updated. There's a, there's a worldwide asthma recommendations uh, and they're updated annually. Whereas the United States has the um, National Heart, Lung, Blood Institute, NHLBI asthma guidelines, which have been updated in what, 14 years, I think. Although the, the most recent update should be coming in the next year, but it's not going to be a comprehensive update that's going to have changes or, or necessarily treatment recommendations. Uh, it's going to address very specific issues. So with the GINA guidelines, they do a really nice job of just of going through the literature and they review the quality of evidence surrounding aspects of management, including diagnosis, treatment options and things along those lines, and they change it accordingly. So the 2020 GINA report has caused a bit of an uproar because it, it made a major change. It's recommended now for adults and adolescents that they can use combination inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists as on-demand therapy. So there, there are three brand names right now. It would be Advair and Simbicort and Dulera. And they, they all have different types of inhaled corticosteroids and different types of long-acting beta agonists. The long-acting beta agonist matters. There's Salmeterol and there's Formoterol. Formoterol is the one that has an onset of action that's the same as albuterol, but it lasts for 12 hours or so. So people feel it when they use it. And the idea behind using these combined ICS LABAs on demand is one, there's a huge body of evidence that shows how well it works. 
Two, we know that non-adherence is a major issue for people with asthma, and it's really hard. How am I going to convince you to take this controller twice a day, every day, when you only have symptoms four times a year? What if instead I gave you one puffer, taught you how to use it, and said, whenever you have symptoms, use this whenever you want as much as you want? And most people listening will now go, oh my gosh, they're going to overdose on inhaled steroids. Well, they're not. Uh, it's still much less than you would get by giving systemic corticosteroids or oral steroids. And in addition to providing a higher dose of inhaled steroids to the lower airways, you're going to bronchodilate at the same time. So you're going to treat the inflammation and they're going to feel a lot better. So that's the major difference is that's now recommended as step one for people who have intermittent symptoms of using those ics lava combination agents. It still remains the same in children um, less than 11 years of age to use albuterol or short-acting beta agonists as the initial on-demand therapy or rescue therapy. Got it. And so just to clarify, so you uh, could start a combination therapy so long as it's the shorter acting for meterol. Yes. And that would be the only inhaler that they're going home with that day. That's correct. And this is for the mildest asthmatic. And it makes a lot of sense, as I mentioned. So it's really for those folks that just have a couple of exacerbations throughout the year, generally on the mild side. We don't want to take that approach for people who have severe exacerbations or have had hospitalizations, things like that. But yeah, that's the major change. And that that's, that's a big change and it can be tough for people to get used to. Now, Dave, I'm still fairly recently young attending. So we've always been told Saba is always the first line. Saba is always the first line. But then over in Europe, I hear that this treatment pathway has been used a lot. And that's where some of the early studies came from and how this, so this came about. Is that is that correct? You're absolutely right. Yeah, this is mainstay of care in Europe, and it has been for, oh boy, many, almost a decade, I think. So that's the one caveat. And I'm glad you brought that up because right now in the United States, insurance companies may, may not reimburse this. So if we're going to prescribe it, sometimes even though we may direct patients to use it this way, which is evidence-based and based upon the GINA recommendations, it may not be covered that way. So you may have to prescribe it slightly differently, such as twice daily use, but then actually explain to patients how to use it the other way. And have you started switching over adolescents from albuterol inhalers to the femeterol combination medications? Is that something that we should be doing for our 14-year-old who comes in with mild intermittent asthma and is on albuterol? I think it requires a, a really good understanding of self-management and a relationship with the patient and the family. So that's not something I generally do on the first visit. And to give some perspective, you know, the, we, I started a complex asthma clinic at my institution almost a decade ago for um, children and adolescents with frequent ER visits, hospitalizations. So kind of the, the most difficult to control patients in our population. So I work with these families and especially those with a lot of disparities. So if you have somebody who comes from a home with multiple caregivers and there's a lot of non-adherence and there's a lot of psychosocial stressors and there's just, you know, kind of a chaotic environment, that's not going to be the best strategy for them. In addition, we have to consider when we send kids to school that a lot of school nurses may not be comfortable with the strategy, may not understand. So we have to we have to battle decades of inertia of thinking albuterol, albuterol, albuterol. So I would say pick and choose your spots. But yeah, I would encourage people to start to play around with it a little bit with the right family and then see how it goes. And sorry, the families with social stressors, you would stick with albuterol rather than the combination? Yeah, and partly because that's what they've known for years and years. So if I'm going to introduce a major change like that, I need to have some sort of relationship with them and, and rapport and, and you know have them. I need to build the trust. I hear you. And so let's say that leukotriene is struggling with asthma control and the inhaled corticosteroid that he was started on or even the combination therapy that we started him on isn't working. How do you think about escalating the therapy, especially with some of those tables? It seems like step-up therapy, you have one of four options on a couple and the guidance, what's the expert opinion? What, what do you, how, how do we escalate therapy? Yeah. So I, I would love for your listeners not to think of therapy as just medicine. Uh, medicine's the last thing on the list. So when we're talking about asthma management, it's really assessment of adherence, environmental exposures, comorbid conditions. So all three of those need to be assessed before you even think about tinkering with the medicine. And the simple reason why is because if you live in a house filled with cigarette smoke and you're not using the inhaler that I prescribed you appropriately, why on earth would I prescribe you a higher strength inhaler? It's not going to do a bit of good. So really spending time thinking through um, what's the technique, how often are you using it? This is where a motivational interviewing can be very helpful. Just really walking through the nitty gritty details of who's supervising them using their medicine. Uh, a lot of parents out there think that their seven-year-old is capable 
capable of self self-management and taking their inhaler twice a day. They are not. Teenagers are not capable of doing it because of their cognitive development. They just can't remember and they can't anticipate risk and long-term consequences from their actions. So we set up a plan of direct supervision. Environmental assessment is is huge um, because say they've been doing well, but they have severe tree pollen allergy in the spring and they're coming in in March and they've just had symptoms over the last couple of weeks, that can help me. Maybe I can you know, step things up or address their allergic rhinitis, uh, which will then control their asthma. And I want everybody to keep in mind that it's a unified airway. If we don't control the nose, we're not going to control the lungs. So that's something that needs to be addressed as well. Obesity is a big comorbid feature. And then you know, gastroesophageal reflux disease can be as well, but it, you know, historically it's been overplayed a little bit. It used to be talking about like, you know, silent reflux causing worsening asthma and, you know, trials with proton pump inhibitors and things like that, unless they're really endorsing significant GERD symptoms, I don't think we need to address that. But those are some things to think about. Then we think about medication. And then when you consider the stepwise progression, it's really just going one step at a time. So we assess their asthma control. If we feel that they are not well controlled for whatever reason, and we've addressed all the other issues with adherence and comorbid features, environmental controls, I hope people get sick of me saying that because that's really important. And then we then we talk about types of medications. So you just go up the ladder. Traditionally speaking, we'd start with like a low dose inhaled corticosteroid if you're going to go with a daily medicine, or now with the GINA guidelines for adolescents and, and, and adults, we would go with an inhaled steroid. Um, long-acting beta agonist combination agent, leukotriene modifiers. So for our patients, leukotriene, who very, very well may benefit from Montelukast, um, that is not the preferred initial therapy. There are some people that may respond really well to that. Uh, people like it because it's it's a tablet, it's a chewable or a granule, as opposed to using inhalers twice a day. We don't have to worry about technique and things like that. But it's not really effective for the vast majority of people with asthma. Their, their asthma just isn't driven by the leukotriene pathway. So it's an add-on therapy. So you start low. If they're not doing well for whatever reason on the lower dose, um, then you step things up a little bit. When it comes to inhaled corticosteroids, there is no reason at all to ever put somebody on high dose inhaled corticosteroids as monotherapy. There are a lot of people out there that don't respond well to corticosteroids who have asthma. In fact, exposure to passive tobacco smoke can decrease your receptivity to inhaled corticosteroids. So if you're not responding to low dose or medium dose, it makes no sense at all to push them, push the dose of the inhaled steroid because you're going to lose the benefit and you're going to cross over to the adverse effects. And we know that that can impact things such as the adrenal glands and affect adult height attainment and things along those lines. So we don't want to go high dose inhaled steroids unless absolutely necessary. And even then, we're going to combine it with a long-acting beta agonist. The data are clear. If you're thinking about stepping things up, anything more than an inhale, a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid, adding on a long-acting beta agonist is superior to all other options. So we always want to consider that. And then you can keep the dose of the steroid low while you add on the lob and see how they respond. Because again, you're going to provide that persistent bronchodilation throughout the day. And then as things sort of escalate, we, st- we start talking about medium dose inhaled steroids, plus minus adding on you know, Montelukast, and we have the LABAs on board. Then we get into really step five and six therapy, if you look at the NHLBI asthma guidelines. And that's when we start thinking about things like these biologic medications that we can target specific pathways in the immune system based upon phenotyping of asthma and endotyping that can, you know, play a significant role for the right patient. And then you can step things down. So I mentioned this before, but it's never set it and forget it. If you're doing great with your asthma and you've been well controlled and you haven't had any problems for six months to a year, let's step you down. Now, that being said, we need to be cognizant of what time of year it is because a lot of kids have a spike in asthma symptoms every autumn when they go back to school. And it's, it's been shown across the world, almost universally, 22 days after the start of school. Why? Because schools are cesspools. And that's the incubation period for all these viruses that commonly cause asthma exacerbations in the fall. So it makes it doesn't make a lot of sense to stop medications for the first time or step people down if they're well controlled in September. Let's get them through the autumn. If they're doing great in winter, then maybe you can step things down. Or a lot of times you can step things down in spring or summer and then consider whether you want to step things back up in the fall. So that, that's a bunch of thoughts all in one, but I really want to send the take-home message regarding this is there's a lot of things to consider more than just the medicine itself in order to have successful asthma management. That's right. I, one of the, I know in one, of our, one of my previous institutions actually had a, uh, I think, citywide or countywide program where they would do home evaluations and help try to identify and reduce exposures and allergens. And that was really helpful. They would also do a lot of allergy testing to help see what allergies they have to try to identify those exposures. Is that something that you would ever recommend is doing allergy testing to help identify exposures that might be triggers? 
Absolutely. And we know that especially with kids, we talked already about that most of them have this TH2 inflammatory pathway or allergic asthma. Uh, about three quarters to 80% of, of kids with asthma, persistent asthma, also have environmental allergies. So if they have ongoing exposure, if their allergic rhinitis is not well controlled, that can impact their asthma. So as a good starting point, I don't think you have to test everybody right out of the gate, uh, but see how they respond to therapy. And so if they're not doing well, if they're not well controlled, and you feel that that may be a factor for persistent asthma, then yes, that's, that's a very good starting place to see if you can identify any type of environmental allergies. So once you have diagnosed some of these environmental allergies, sometimes it can be difficult to then try to figure out how to reduce these these exposures. Do you, especially for our, you know, our patients and their families who may live in, you know, apartments where they may not be able to live anywhere else, do you ever get like social work involved or medical legal involved to talk to landlords? Is this something that you might do to help them? Yeah, it, 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 there are unfortunate circumstances, and it's going to vary based upon where you live and you know the types of living environments that folks have. But yeah, it can get to that, especially for people who have you know proven allergy to things like mold or cockroaches, and we need some sort of remediation inside the living unit. You know, if there's water damage that isn't being fixed, they're going to have ongoing exposure and ongoing mold growth, and that can be a real problem. But that's also an important reason to accurately identify: do they have allergies or not? Because if they're not allergic to mold, then you can't blame the mold. You certainly can blame poor indoor air quality and address it that way. But no, that's an important part of all this. I have a specific treatment question. I remember I was taught a pearl that for those who did claim to have exercise-induced bronchospasm, Montelukast particularly was a helpful treatment. Uh, true or false? It is approved for use for exercise-induced asthma. Uh, it's also approved for allergic asthma. For exercise-induced asthma, there's you can either use it on a daily basis or you can use it, I believe it's two hours prior to exercise, but it still does not replace the use of albuterol 15 to 20 minutes prior to exercise to bronchodilate. So yes, you're right. But I think the more we know about, we learn about asthma and, and exercise-induced asthma, plus with the new, you know, now there's a black box warning on Montelukast. We've known for over a decade that it is associated with rare adverse events that can cause psychological changes, including depression, uh, suicidality for, for adolescents, or severe behavior changes in young children. It's a rare adverse effect, but when it does occur, it can be pretty dramatic. And typically, it's in the first 30 to 60 days of using the medicine. And, and almost all patients will go revert back to baseline once you discontinue it. But that's a conversation we now need to have with everybody when we prescribe Montelukast. So if you're thinking about about doing it for you know the track athlete just because you want to try something for exercise you have to have that conversation with them and they may balk at that or you may decide that that's not worth the risk as well justin were you going to ask something about steroids yeah i had a, a preceptor who would say anytime a person in your clinic is wheezing they should be getting oral steroids in a patient with asthma i should i should give this. Ah. is that a safe bet as to always if you hear active wheezing on exam to treat with oral steroids no, just because they walk into your office or your urgent care doesn't mean they need to get steroids. Uh, <laughs> so we know enough now. Can we do more aggressive use of albuterol? Or can we use the combination of inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists to, to do that? And there's also provisions in the new gene guidelines as well to, you know, every time you use your SABA or your albuterol, use an inhaled steroid with it. So now using more inhaled steroids as on-demand therapy, which many studies have shown can be equivalent to using on a daily basis by preventing exacerbations. So no, I, I still would say things have evolved and our understanding has evolved and you don't need oral steroids. But when you do decide to use them, it's important for the listeners to understand it, it's not seven days of prednisone every time. Be thoughtful about it. How long have you had symptoms? What's the degree of impairment? A lot of times you can just use three days of steroids because most of the time you get better in the first day or two anyways that treat the inflammation in the lower airways with systemic steroids. And then there's also provisions for using things like Decadron. You can use de dexamethasone, either one or two doses for mild to moderate exacerbations in kids. It works really well. It's associated with less emesis compared to prednisolone. So there's a lot of different ways to be thoughtful about this. It should not be just a knee-jerk wheezing here seven days of prednisone. Great. I, one last question I sort of want to ask is, we sort of brings us all back to what we were discussing at the beginning is, is, is there any place for using peak flows? I know I still have a lot of older colleagues who use them and I've seen it here and there. I, I have older patients who still use their peak flows at home. I, I just, I never know what to say when someone gives me their peak flows because I'm not really quite sure how to use it, but I don't know if it's a generational thing or is there actually a place to use this? 
Yeah, I think there is, but it's for the right patient. So I don't think everybody would benefit. You're going to get the score that you blow. So it can be effort dependent. It's just one piece of data that, you know, it may indicate impending asthma exacerbation or loss of asthma control if your numbers start to go down for a day or two. So for some people that may indicate the need to increase their therapy or activate their yellow zone management. There's another important consideration is about 30% of severe asthmatics cannot perceive bronchoconstriction. They don't feel that dyspnea until it's too late. They're typically the ones who crash real fast, real hard, end up in the ICU. So they're walking around for a couple of days or longer with significant inflammation and bronchoconstriction, but they don't feel it uh, until really their airflow is, is significantly obstructed. So for that patient, if you can identify that, that patient who has poor perception of their underlying bronchoconstriction, then home peak flow monitoring may be very useful because if they get used to it, then they may be able to say, oh, my baseline's in this range. I'm down 30, 40, 50%. Uh-oh, that's a problem. Thank you. So that was that was super useful. It's it's great to to have some insight on how to use peak flows appropriately. And I think there definitely are some patients in in my my clinic who definitely could use it that way. So thank you. Yeah, along those lines, if I may, if you're going to use peak flows, then it is incumbent upon you to teach them how to use it. So just like inhalers, it, people don't know how to, it's not intuitive to use inhalers and inhalers come in all shapes and sizes now. There's breath actuated inhalers, dry powdered inhalers, meter dose inhalers with HFAs, there's twist inhalers. So it's important that we review the technique, the proper technique with every asthma patient regarding their type of inhaler that's been prescribed at every visit. This can be done by a respiratory therapist if you have one on staff. It can be done by you know certified asthma educators on your office if you have any nurses yourself, trainees. But that's a really important component of this because if you just say, "Here's your peak flow, have a nice life," it's going to end up in the trash, or they're going to use it incorrectly. Do you have any resources like YouTube video places or anything that you'd like to hand out to patients to to learn about appropriate technique for their specific inhaler or how to use peak flows? We do hands-on training until they get it right, and we demonstrate that. So that's that's something we're committed to. But I'm also in a specialty clinic. I mean, this is what we do in, within allergy and immunology. But there are wonderful resources now. So a lot of the advocacy organizations, I believe AFA that we talked about before may have some online. I know Nationwide Children's Hospital. I helped actually edit and film these videos. This was... I think six or seven years ago, but there's still, it's the technique remains the same. So you can look at how to use inhalers with spacers with the mouthpiece or spacers with a face mask. And uh, it's also important um, to understand that all patients should be prescribed a spacer with their HFA inhalers. The way I describe it to patients, it's because the medicine sits in the canister as a liquid. We need to, we need enough space for it to turn into fine droplets that can be inhaled deep inside the lungs. It takes roughly three to four inches to do that. Even with the best technique in the world, if you coordinate the pressing of the, the um, puffer with your inhalation, there's just not enough space from the front of the teeth to the back of the throat. So the medicine stays as a liquid, lands on the tongue, the back of the throat, or ends up in the stomach. Whereas if you put the spacer on there, it allows enough space for that medicine to turn into a nice aerosol that you can then slowly breathe in deeply into your lungs. And the best argument for using a spacer is what's the primary tr medical treatment for eosinophilic esophagitis, an inflammatory condition of the esophagus? We use inhaled corticosteroids without a spacer. Why? Because the medicine goes to the esophagus. <laughs> so if that doesn't argue for the use of it, I don't know what does. So we advocate for that. We, we, we reinforce that with all of our patients. And even then you have to use the right technique with the spacer uh, to make sure that you're getting the medicine adequately. So I guess my, my last question for you is what, what is the future of asthma? What, what, what do you see coming up ahead of us? Are there any cool treatments that you see on the horizon? What, what's going to change asthma in the future the future is here. So when I started my my residency, oh my gosh, 18 years ago, and then then fellowship, we talked about personalized medicine, right? So you're going to go in and see your doctor with asthma, and it's going to be, let's take a detailed clinical history, let's use some biomarkers, let's do some objective testing, and let's put all things into the computer and spit out the equation of what's the best medicine for you. Well, guess what? We've been doing that for years. So we, we now need to move way past just saying asthma is one size fits all. It is not. Asthma is a heterogeneous condition that it really has like 30 different types, but that we need to, we need to accurately identify the phenotype 
and or endotype, use biomarkers when we have them available, whether that's you know blood markers or exhaled nitric oxide as markers of uh, lower airway eosinophilia. We need to use our understanding of how the different phenotypes will predict response to therapy. So if it's neutrophil-driven asthma, such as in an adult or especially an adult smoker, you know they may not respond very well to certain types of medications like inhaled corticosteroids. We may need to use long-acting beta agonists or so on and so forth. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we're actually characterizing what type of asthma this patient has. We need to be thoughtful about how we're going to initiate therapy. And then with the use of biologics, I mean, we now have targeted ways where we can cross off certain parts of the immune system that are involved in different immunologic pathways that really cause inflammation and asthma. And we can use these for patients who truly have severe poorly controlled disease and are at risk for you know frequent exacerbations. So the future is now. Uh, I just want everybody to start thinking in these terms and, and really understand that everybody with asthma is their own unique individual. And while we can take certain concepts to begin our approach to each patient, it is not one size fits all. Wow. Excellent. Cool. Dave, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. So my last, actually, so I keep on saying it's my last question, but this really is my last question. So what are your main take-home points for our listeners today? And do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I think the take-home points, there's, there's just a couple to keep in mind. One is use the clinical history to diagnose asthma. So understand the elements of asthma and be comfortable making the diagnosis. Don't be afraid of the big A word. It's not a scary thing. It's one of the most common chronic conditions affecting children. So we need to recognize that and call it what it is. Really keep in mind that asthma is heterogeneous. It changes throughout the year. It changes over time. Our approach to management absolutely needs to change per individual and throughout time as well. So it should never be set it and forget it. And then really, it's not one size fits all. We need to really think through an individualized approach to every single child and patient with asthma to think about what variables may be impacting their disease. And as far as plugging, I, I suppose if it's okay, uh, if anybody is interested, you know, you can look for me on social media. So my account is at AllergyKidsDoc on both Twitter and Instagram. And I'm out there trying to fight the good fight and uh, combat misinformation. So I would love to have, you know, dialogue and interaction on those platforms as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking your time with us. It was a great time. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. I really hope this is helpful for your listeners. I think it's going to be great. I really do. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Uh. <laughs> Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list known as Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge and weight-based dosings of fun. To do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our assistant producer for this episode, Edward Cordy. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Edward Cordy. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.